me to the book of First John. To the fourth chapter. First John chapter four. We'll be reading verses seven to twenty-one. We'll be focusing our attention in on verses seven to twelve, but we're going to read to the rest of the chapter for the context. And so when you find that, would you rise out of reverence for God's word? First John chapter four, starting in verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his one and only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have heard from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the wonderful word of the living God. Let us pray. Father, with our heads bowed and standing in your presence as the Spirit of Jesus Christ is among us. Father, we come to worship you through the study of your word. We have worshipped you in song. We have worshipped you in prayer. We have worshipped you in the Lord Jesus Christ through the communion time. But Father, now we come to worship you by opening up your word and learning from it. For your word was given to us to reveal your will and your purpose. 
your love. And so, Father, we say thank you once again. And we pray, I pray, Father, that we would all worship you by focusing, by setting our hearts upon you, by opening up our ears wide to learn from you, to hear what your word has to teach us today. Father, once again, we thank you for the cross. Because without the cross, none of our worship would rise to you. None of our worship would be pleasing in your sight. And so we know that the blood of Jesus must cover everything we do and say in order for it to have any beauty in your holy sight. Father, I pray that you would help me to preach your word boldly as I should. And Father, as we talk about the gospel and share the good news of Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that you would heart, that you would soften every heart here. That you would make all of us receptive to receive the gospel. That if there are any people here today who do not believe, Father, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where the knee is finally bowed to Jesus Christ. And trust alone placed in his perfect sacrifice. For those of us who already believe, Father, may today be a day of, of encouragement to be refreshed once again in the gospel. For it is our daily bread. It is our daily peace and joy and comfort. So, Father, we commit all these things into your care. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we come together once again to consider the good news of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. This is the day that we commemorate the shameful and humiliating death of Jesus on a Roman cross, on a hill of execution outside the walls of Jerusalem. In the eyes of the world, he was nothing. Just some pathetic fool who said the wrong thing at the wrong time. In the eyes of the Romans, he was a criminal, an insurrectionist who dared oppose the might of Rome. In the eyes of the Jewish ruling elite, he was an abomination, a blasphemer against God and Moses who fully deserved to die. In the eyes of the common Jewish people, he was a failure, a messianic pretender who had caught their attention and inspired them for a moment, but had ultimately let them down. In the eyes of his disciples, Jesus was a disappointment. They had devoted three years of their lives to him. They had seen his miracles. They had acknowledged directly that he was God's promised Messiah, but now it was all over. Time to go back to fishing, I guess. But in the eyes of God, Good Friday, Good Friday is the moment that he had created the universe for. This is where divine justice and divine mercy would come together and be reconciled. 
This is where the great high priest, the Lord of glory, the Son of Man, God the Son, the eternal Word who became flesh, would offer up the ultimate and perfect sacrifice before God the Father upon the altar of the cross. The sacrifice of his very self. This morning I've entitled this message, The Gospel of Good Friday. Good Friday proclaims good news to sinners who realize they need a Savior. Now if you don't think of yourself as a sinner, then Good Friday is just another Friday, and the good news is just news. But it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It matters what God thinks about you. If you are a sinner in God's eyes, then you're in a lot of trouble. And the Bible clearly says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But when you realize that you are a sinner in the eyes of God, then Good Friday does not just proclaim good news, but wonderful news, stupendous news, incredible news, fantastic news, the best news ever. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to begin by having us do a little thought exercise together. It's fairly simple. I just want you to visualize in your head a sentence. Just a little sentence. And that is, God is blank, period. Alright, so put that in your head. God is blank, period. So now that you have that little sentence in your mind, now I want you to think of what it is. What is the best word that fills in the blank? What is the fundamental characteristic of God from which flows out everything else? What is the most basic attribute of God according to the Bible? Or think of it as a circle, and the circle represents God. What do you put in the middle of the circle as representing or describing the central characteristic of God? This is a very important question. Because how you view the fundamental nature of God will affect everything else about how you think about God. This means that you have to start with the right view of God and who He is. Otherwise, you will be on the wrong foot right from the very first step and you will end up having a skewed and imbalanced view of who God is. So what is the fundamental central characteristic of God? How did you fill in the blank? God is holy. God is holy. That is the fundamental characteristic and central attribute of God. His holiness. Everything else flows out of God's holy nature. And only when you start with this understanding... Will you truly come to know the God of Scripture? Listen to these verses from the Old Testament that lay this foundation of God's holiness. 
Leviticus 11. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Leviticus 21, you shall sanctify him, the high priest, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. Joshua 24, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your trespasses or your sins. Psalm 22, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Psalm 71, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. Psalm 99, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Again, Psalm 99, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Isaiah 5, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And then Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, this is the one where the seraphim who surround the throne of God in heaven, they are the holiest angels, and they cover their eyes because even they cannot gaze upon the glory of God, and what do they say all day long? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. One hundred times in the Old Testament, God is called the Holy One, or the Holy One of Israel. Thirty times in the book of Isaiah alone. God is holy. That is the fundamental characteristic of God. That is our first point this morning. If you don't remember anything else from this sermon, remember this one thing. God is holy. He is perfectly holy. He is absolutely holy. That is his most basic attribute. Now you may be thinking to yourself, but, but just wait a minute, Pastor. I thought that God is love. That's how I filled in the blank. Is not the central and fundamental characteristic of God love? And I will answer you. God's love is indeed an important and key characteristic, but it's not the fundamental one. On the bottom level, God's holiness is the most fundamental. If a person views the love of God as his central characteristic, he or she will soon run into great difficulties as we read the Bible. I'll just name a few of them. The punishment of the flood. The conquering of Canaan by wiping out the Gentile nations. Ordering a man or ordering death for a man who just picked up some sticks on a Sabbath day. Striking Uzziah dead just for touching the Ark of the Covenant. Using the brutal and sadistic Assyrian armies to punish Israel. And those are just a handful of them. If you start off on the premise that God is love, you're going to have a problem with all of these things. 
Because you would tell yourself, well, a loving God wouldn't do all these things. But even worse, if you start off with the idea that God is fundamentally love, you're going to have a very great difficulty with the idea of hell. Because what loving God would send anyone to suffer in fire for all eternity? And if you're being consistent, you're even going to have a problem with Good Friday. Because what loving father in his right mind would send his son to die on a cross? That sounds like divine child abuse. And this is why I said before that if you start with the wrong fundamental idea of who God is, then you will immediately begin to go off in the wrong direction. But when we understand that fundamentally God is holy, then all of these things in the Bible make sense. The flood was the punishment of a holy God toward evil and wicked humanity. The conquering of Canaan was the purging of evil nations by a holy God. Who fully, nations who fully deserved his wrath. The man who gathered sticks on the Sabbath was thumbing his nose as a, at a holy God, and he deserved to die. Uzzah knew better than to touch the ark of, of a holy God, and God revealed that to everyone on that day, especially to King David, who was watching, that God will be treated as holy in everything. The holy God punished wicked Israel with the Assyrians, and then that same holy God punished the wicked Assyrians for doing it. And a holy God sends unholy people to hell. That is the truth of Scripture. And that is fully consistent with His holiness. For he cannot even have one little stain of sin come into his holy presence. But pastor, you may still say, the passage that we just read from 1 John chapter 4, it said two times that God is love. In verse 8 and verse 16. Doesn't that mean that love is God's central characteristic? Well, we're going to look together at this passage in just a moment, but first we need to realize something very important. That in the book of 1 John, this is actually the second time that John the writer has said that God is something. So let's turn over just a couple pages to 1 John chapter 1 to see the first time that, God, that John wrote, God is blank. God is something. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to what this verse says. This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So, there is the other God is statement in the book of 1 John. God is light. And so what does it mean that God is light, that there is no darkness in him at all? Well, it's simply another way of saying that God is holy. God is pure, perfect, set apart, pristine, immaculate, free from any corruption or taint. God is holy. There is no darkness, no sin, no evil at all in him. So John has said that God is light. And John has also said that God is love. So which one 
is more central to God's character, his lightness or his love? Is God primarily loving and then he is holy? Or is God primarily holy and then loving? That is the big question we are asking today. Well, I think that God, that John has already given us the answer just in the simple order of the way he has arranged it. The way that he has presented these two God is statements because which one came first? He said first, God is light, by which he means God is holy. And so this becomes the grounding statement, the foundational statement that then provides the context for chapter 4, when John will say God is love. It is like John is saying this. In the context of the fact that God is first and foremost holy, now here is how he demonstrated his love. This holy God sent his holy son to save an unholy people. This holy God sent his holy son to save an unholy people. So if we go back to chapter 4, verse 8 tells us that God is love. And then immediately afterwards, John launches into the gospel, doesn't he? In verse 9. And this tells us that you cannot separate the love of God from the gospel. You cannot separate the love of God from the cross. It is the gospel. It is the cross that reveals and displays the love of God. So look at verse 9. It says, this is how God showed his love among us by giving us sunshine and rain and food on the table and beautiful rainbows and green meadows and the look of joy in a little child's eye and breathtaking mountain views and cute puppies and adorable kittens and loving families and good friends. Is that what verse 9 says? No. It says that God manifested his love among us in this. He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What does this teach us? Jesus Christ is the expression of God's love. And there is no other. Everything else is common grace. But love, Jesus Christ, is the expression of God's love. And so the next time you hear someone say something stupid like, Oh, I see the love of God in the face of my child. You need to correct them and say, No, the love of God is found in Jesus Christ alone. God's love cannot be separated from Jesus. And God's love can never be divorced from the cross that Jesus died on. When we gaze at that cross, we should see love. Better, we should see the intersection of God's holiness and his love. Right there. <clears throat> and so at the end of verse 9, we ask, but how? How can we live through Jesus? That's why God sent Jesus, and how do we live through Jesus? And so verse 10 gives us the answer. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, or the atoning sacrifice, your Bible might say, for our sins. 
And so the love of God is demonstrated in the sending of his one and only son to go to the cross as the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is one of those big words. It means the turning away of God's wrath so that his justice is satisfied. It is an atoning sacrifice that cleanses from sin. But we ask, but why? Why is a propitiating, atoning sacrifice necessary in the first place? The answer because God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. An unholy man or an unholy woman cannot enter into the heavenly presence of a holy God unless something or someone makes them holy. And not a single one of us can make ourselves holy. Only God can make someone holy. And in his great love, he provided the means by which human beings can be made holy. The cross of Good Friday. The cross is the great altar. And Jesus is the Lamb of God, the great sacrifice who hung on that altar. It was a once for all time sacrifice because it was a perfect sacrifice. And so for all those who repent of their sin, confessing it before God and turning away from it, turning toward Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in his sacrifice alone to save, surrendering to his lordship over your whole life, God transfers, God transfers Christ's holiness to you. Christ's holiness becomes your holiness. And so now I can stand in the holy presence of a holy God. Not because of any holiness of mine. Indeed, I have none. But because of Christ's <coughs> holiness imputed to me. The application of the gospel comes in verse 11. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If we as Christians truly understand the awesome love that God has poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, if we truly comprehend it, if we really, really get it, then the natural outworking of God's love filling our hearts is that it will overflow in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just like what we say about forgiveness. It's just, why, it's just like why Christians should forgive. Because if we understand what great forgiveness God has done for us in Christ, when we had sinned so greatly against him, then we should be able to forgive the comparatively little sins that people sin against us. So in the same way, if God has poured out his love upon us in Christ, then it follows that we ought to love one another. You cannot love God, but then hate your brother in Christ. You cannot claim to have the love of God in your heart, while at the same time you hate your sister in Christ. Verse 20, if you skip down, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And as we come to a close this morning, the gospel of Good Friday is this. God is absolutely holy. But because every single human being is a sinner, we are all unholy. And the response of a holy God towards unholiness is wrath. And God's holy wrath is eternal. If you die tonight in the state of sin and stand before the judgment seat of a holy God, the fullness of his holy wrath will be poured out upon your head. And once it starts being poured, it will never stop. And that is why Jesus said, the real one you need to fear is God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's why Jesus said that there's no point in gaining the whole world in this life if you're just going to forfeit your soul to the fires of hell. And that's why Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away, because it's way better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's just how bad it is. But, but this holy God, in love, provided a way out from under his holy wrath. And that way out is Jesus Christ, for he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. By repentant faith in Jesus and by trusting in his sacrifice on the cross alone to save you, this is the only escape from the holy wrath of the holy God. And that's why Good Friday is oh so good. Let us pray. Father God, when we meditate upon your holiness, shivers should run up and down our spine, and our knees should knock together, and our legs should tremble in awe before how pure and holy and perfect you are. That you are light. In you there is no darkness at all. But Father, as we gaze into your holy glory, and then we look back down at ourselves, Father, we should recoil in horror because we are darkness. We are unholy, and there is no way that we can possibly stand before you unless you did something first. And so, Father, we see that you, a holy God, in your great love, you provided one way and one way only out from under your holy wrath. And that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is why Good Friday is so good. That is why we are here to worship you, to adore you, and to give you thanks. Because, Father, we are a people who have been rescued, who have been delivered, who have been saved. 
And Father, so often we don't act like it. So often we forget. So often we get wrapped up in our petty quarrels. We forget to love one another. We forget your great love. We forget to, to love the brotherhood by even coming to church. We forget to worship you. Everything begins to slide. We begin to turn back or, or take a few steps backwards in our Christian walk. Maybe even get angry towards you. And all of that happens when we begin to lose sight of the cross. So, Father, forgive us. We pray. Restore us. Place the cross front and center once again. Because it is the only reason, it is the only thing standing between us and your eternal wrath. And there but for the grace of God go we. For Father, there is no one who can say, oh, I'm holier than the next person beside me. Every single one of us deserves the fullness of your wrath for our sin. And yet Jesus Christ took our unholiness upon his shoulders and he bore your wrath upon that cross. In those six hours and three hours of darkness, Father, when your justice was fully satisfied, the justice that we deserved when Jesus Christ died our death in our place. Father, that is why we need to, we as Christians need to be reminded of the gospel constantly. So that even we would begin to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we ought. Father, I pray that as we go through the rest of this day, that your gospel would echo in our hearts. That the reason Jesus came and went to the cross would, would become deeper within us. And, and even that we would reflect upon your holiness more, Father. Because it is when we realize just how holy you are, that's when we realize what a great love you have bestowed upon us. When we have a small vision of your holiness, we will have a small vision of your love. But when we just realize just how incredibly holy you are, and just how incredibly unholy we were, then your love is magnified. It becomes so big, Father. And so let us meditate very deeply upon these things. And I do pray for anyone here who does not believe in Jesus Christ. I pray that today would be the day of repentance and faith in him. Meditating upon these truths from your holy word. And I pray for anyone who may say they believe in Jesus, but they have not repented of their sin. They're not Christians yet. They've not made you the Lord of their lives. I pray today would be that day.
that they would become a believer, a full and true believer, so that they would fall down before your feet, realizing how holy you are, how desperate we all need a Savior, and how wonderful it is that you have provided such a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may, be, may today be the day for all of us that we would live for you and own you as our only Lord and Master. It's in Jesus' precious, precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.